0: Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 20 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 20. I have a, a number of things. My heart is very full this morning for a number of reasons. It's good to be back with you after the time that we were away. Secondly, it's good to look out and see so many visitors with us this morning. You are welcome. We're very glad to have you here. Third, I look up front and I see these beautiful plants next to the screen behind me. I don't, well, the screen's gone, but the plants are still there. I don't know if anybody said anything. They were here last week, but uh, they look so nice. And our parking lot expansion project out front is is going well. Uh, Will you pray with me? Our trust is not in plants and in paving. But to the full extent that plants and paving can be useful in bringing people to Jesus Christ, that's what we want these plants and paving to do. So thankful for people in our congregation who use the gifts and talents and their businesses that they have to serve the church. Heather Hagee uh, did these uh, plants, and of course, Roland Paving is working out front, and we're just grateful to God for people who use their skills and uh, businesses to serve in our building. My heart is also full this morning because today's the last day that Bob and Lydia Johns will be with us before they leave to go back to their ministry in South America. Uh, we're so pleased that they have been with us many times over the summer. And uh, this is, they're running some of their final laps in the ministry that they're doing in uh, South America. And our prayer is that it would be, they would be happy, happy laps as they uh, finish the ministry that God has called them to. Then, two more things I have to share with you. Um, Some of you are, remember that a group of nine of us will be going to France this summer to serve. Uh, We'll be there for a week uh, working at a retreat for missionaries, serving those uh, people there. Uh, Then on the weekend after we do that, we're going to be visiting Steve and Donna Niles in the church that they are planting. Steve emailed me this week and asked me to speak at the church on Sunday. My French is terrible. So um, it'll be the first time I've spoken through a translator. That'll be an interesting experience, but uh, we're looking forward to that. And then finally... Last week, um, I wasn't here, but John Smith was. Some of you know John Smith. John Smith is the pastor of Grace Brethren Church of Willow Valley, and he's on sabbatical this summer, and he visited our church last week, and he sent me this note. I'll read it to you. My wife and I were in town this past Sunday and decided to attend your church. Once seated, I asked the individuals next to me if he knew where you were. I was looking for you and hadn't seen you. He told me you were on vacation. But even in your absence, the church was the church. Clearly. Good. Then, he says, this is wonderful. Scott's message was the best exposition of a text we have heard to this point in our sabbatical visits. Ah, good word. And our overall worship experience left us rejoicing in God. So that was uh, good news from John Smith and a great encouragement to Scott as well. Now, if you have made it to First Samuel chapter 20, you'll have noticed perhaps that this is a long chapter of Scripture. By my estimation, it is the second longest passage in the book of First Samuel. Uh, we struggle sometimes with these. Remember, when Paul writes a letter, he packs truth into paragraphs like plutonium. He packs it in, and you touch it and it explodes. Narratives don't work that way. Narratives, they take their time, they're scenic, they're lovely, they're long. But since God's Word, since when we read God's Word, it's the only perfect part of our service, we're committed to reading. So we're going to read this long chapter of Scripture. Now, the David and Goliath story is the only story that's longer than this, I think, in all of Samuel. That is a light, energizing, happy story. Sometimes it's a little funny. This story is dark and sad and discouraging. Well, here we go. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 1. Then David fled from Nioth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to kill me? Never, Jonathan replied. You're not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. But David took an oath and said, your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there's only a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. So David said, look, tomorrow is the new moon feast. And I'm supposed to dine with the king, but let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him, David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says, very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant, For you have brought him into covenant with you before the Lord. If I'm guilty, kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan said. If I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? David asked. Who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Come, Jonathan said. Let's go out into the field. So they went there together. Then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed toward you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so that I may not be killed and do not ever cut off your kindness for my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. Then Jonathan said to David, the mar- Tomorrow is the new moon feast. You will be missed, because your seat will be empty. The day after tomorrow toward evening, go to the place where you hid when this trouble began and wait by the stone at Zell. I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I were shooting at a target. Then I will send a boy and say, go find the arrows. If I say to him, look, the arrows are on this side of you, bring them here, then come home because as surely as the Lord lives, you are safe, there's no danger. But if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are beyond you, then you must go because the Lord has sent you away. And about the matter you and I discussed, remember, the Lord is witness between you and me forever. So David hid in the field, and when the new moon feast came, the king sat down to eat. He sat in his customary place by the wall opposite Jonathan, and Abner sat next to Saul, but David's place was empty. Saul said nothing that day, for he thought, something must have happened to David to make him ceremonially unclean. Surely he's unclean, but the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. Then Saul said to his son, Jonathan, Why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away to see my brothers. That is why he's not come to the king's table. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman. We'll stop here for just a minute. Um, This translation is very difficult. Um, The words, the words aren't right. The words are, this is a very literal translation of the words, but they don't really convey Saul's meaning. He's angry at his son. He insults his mother, Saul's wife, but he's not really insulting his mother. You stupid son of a... You can't say that. You can't print that in the Bible, right? But that's what Saul said to Jonathan. You stupid son of a... We wonder, we've wondered at this point in time, does Saul know that David is the one who's going to replace him? And uh, it's pretty clear from this text that he, by now he, he does. Let's keep reading here. Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him for me, bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father, but Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew his father intended to kill David. Jonathan got off from the table in fierce anger. On that second day of the feast, he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. He had a small boy with him, and he said to the boy, run and find the arrows I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out after him, isn't the arrow beyond you? Then he shouted, hurry, go quickly, don't stop. The boy picked up the arrow and returned to his master. The boy knew nothing about all this. Only Jonathan and David knew. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said, Go, carry them back to town. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. And they kissed each other and wept together. But David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. Uh, earlier this year, the Boston Globe printed an article. It was by Billy Baker, and here's what the article was called. It was titled, The Biggest Threat Facing Middle-Aged Men Isn't Smoking or Obesity, It's... Now, what would you put in that blank? How would you finish that sentence? Uh, What is a bigger threat to middle-aged men than smoking or obesity? Uh, Here it is again. Think about it. The biggest threat facing middle-aged men isn't smoking or obesity. It's loneliness. Loneliness is actually the title of the article. Here's the path that Billy Baker sets his readers on. Um, When you become an adult, work begins to take up more and more and more of your time. Then you get married and you have children. And between running your house and pursuing your career and trying to stay in shape, if that's possible, and if you're a follower of Jesus, getting involved in the church, there's not much time left for friendship in your schedule. And if you do have some fr- free time, oh, it's really hard to leave your wife at home to change diapers and stop arguments and help with homework so you can go hang out with your pals. So friendship slide. And that's where the consequences for your health come in. Over and over and over and over again, it has been demonstrated that lonely people are far more more likely to die early than their peers with friends. You you eliminate every factor. If you can eliminate uh, race, gender, wealth, diet and exercise plans, if you eliminate them, friendless people die prematurely. They're more likely to suffer from cardiovascular disease and strokes, the symptoms of Alzheimer's appear earlier and are more pronounced. Loneliness is as bad for you as smoking is. Uh, Brigham Young University conducted a study. It was a 35 year study. They uh, uh, surveyed 3.5 million Americans. Lonely people, isolated people, are 26 to 32 percent more likely to die prematurely. Do you have any friends? Someone other than your spouse. Maybe actually someone even outside of your family. Maybe this is a chapter that can help us because this is about one of the great friendships of the Bible. Do you remember how uh, we've been reading through this book? And in chapters 18 and 19, David goes virtually silent so, in chapter 16, he's anointed king by Samuel. In chapter 17, he emerges and defeats Goliath. He doesn't say anything in 18 and 19. He's silent, he's passive, he doesn't do anything. The point, of the, author, the point the author's trying to make is he's trying to show us how the people around David are going to respond to him, the one who is God's anointed. But here, in chapter 20, he plots and plans, he speaks, he loves, he weeps. He, he, he's active again. All of this in the context of his friendship with Jonathan. Now before we even get to this text here this morning, there is an issue that we need to address. It's a significant issue that we need to address. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Now is the time, and here we're going to go on a pretty lengthy tangent from 1 Samuel chapter 20. Uh, There are some interpreters of Scripture who have argued that here in 1 Samuel 20 we have a covert homosexual relationship that the most logical way to interpret everything that happens here uh, between these two men, their tears, their kissing, their embracing, their covenant, their planning, their friendship, is that this is not just a friendship, but a romance. Uh, The same charge is sometimes leveled at Ruth and Naomi in the Old Testament. Uh, When Ruth speaks to Naomi in chapter 2 and promises her fidelity to her, some people see in that that, um, again, more than a friendship, not friendship, but romance. now I 'm going to give you two reasons why that 's a poor reason, a poor way, sorry, to read first Samuel, and then we 're going to go broader a little bit in the rest of the scriptures for, for a few minutes. I must state this very plainly. this is not a homosexual relationship between David and Jonathan. If it were, there would be a massive contradiction between david 's life and the description of him as a man after God's own heart. The Law of Moses, which is in the background of this whole book, which shapes the book, which gives it its flavor, is very clear. It uses the word abomination to describe same-sex relationships. And there is no way that the author of this book would name David as a man after God's own heart and ignore this sort of abomination in the text. And there's a second reason why we should reject this view that this is a same-sex romance. When David does sin sexually, oh, we're going to come to this in a few months, the author of Samuel doesn't hide it and he doesn't downplay it at all. He knows exactly what happened with Bathsheba. He knows about David's thoughts and feelings and motivations and lust. He knows everything. And he tells us about them. And he describes the consequences of those decisions. He would not have... Um, uh, he would have known about a sexual relationship with Jonathan and he would not have let that slide by. Now some, some might object and they say, well, the authors, they just had to be subtle here. They had to place us here gentle, gently so that we could recognize this relationship for what it is without a blaring sign. <laughs> David's adulterous sexual sin is blaring. There is no reason why we should think that, that any sort of David's uh, same-sex sin would not be blaring in the text now we can go a few steps further in in thinking about this the bible is unambiguous in identifying homosexuality as a sin the standard in scripture is that sexual intimacy sexual interest sexual contact this whole area of life is to be reserved before the covenant a marriage covenant between a man and a woman Love is the boundary within marriage around which sexual intimacy flourishes. Love focuses our sexuality like a laser beam to accomplish all of the good and all of the joy and all of the blessing that God intended when he made us sexual beings. And this standard uh, condemns a whole host of behavior. Our church has a written policy statement that describes what we believe about human sexuality. We updated it a few years ago. We had to. There were things we needed to add. This, this border that the Bible places around sexual intimacy within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman condemns adultery. Actually, the Bible talks about adultery the most. Adultery, fornication, polygamy, rape, bestiality, incense, incest, pedophilia, bisexuality, masturbation, pornography, all of them are condemned by this standard that the Bible upholds. The Bible is very clear about that. I'm going to read a few more verses here. 1 Corinthians 6. I printed it on the note sheet if you want to look. 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. It's easy to be deceived about this. Don't be deceived about this. Neither the sexually immoral, immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. People in the church in Corinth like this. But you were washed. That's such good news. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Uh, Romans 1, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged uh, natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. 1 Thessalonians 4, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. It's a learning process. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. That's what some of those behaviors are that I mentioned, taking advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before for God did not call us to be impure but to live a holy life. We can make this broad statement of the biblical standard about which the Bible is unambiguous but it doesn't even begin to answer all of the questions that we have about homosexuality and these other behaviors either. We have issues that we have to deal with at some point in time we're not going to do that today. What are the roots of homosexuality? Its origins. For a long time it was uh, a scientific uh, pursuit to find the genetic link to homosexuality. There were news articles about that. Uh, What about a cure? Can we even use the word cure? Should we use the word cure? Is that the good word to use when we think about homosexuality? The cultural pressures that we have faced due to the sexual revolution uh, have helped us learn to speak more honestly and clearly about these issues. If the Bible sets the standard that sexual intimacy is reserved for the marriage covenant between a man and a woman, then we have to confess that we are all in some degree sexually broken people. We all are somewhere on the spectrum of sexual brokenness. From one end with uh, inordinate desires to the other end, a complete lack of interest or even revulsion at the idea of sexual intimacy. Both of them fall short of God's standards. And we're on that spectrum because of our own sin and because of the sins that have been committed against us. The Bible talks about uh, people who uh, sin sexually and are sinned against sexually. The most pressing issue in our culture right now, of course, is the transgender issue. There's a close connection between homosexuality and transgenderism. Follow me here for just a minute. Homosexuality breaks the link between your biological sex, whether or not you're male or female, and your sexual orientation, who you desire sexually. So, homosexuality breaks. A biological male should be sexually oriented toward a biological female. But homosexuality breaks that link. Transgenderism goes one step further it severs the connection between your biological sex and your gender identity. You may be biologically male, but you don't have to identify that way, they're related. It's a division, both of those things divide us, when Psalm 139 says that God puts us together. You are one person, and your orientation and your identity and your, bo- your, your uh, body are one together, and they should match. Now, I think that the ultimate root of all of this sexual confusion is the rejection of the nature of God. The Bible tells us in Genesis 1 that God made us male and female and He made us in His image. That is, we show what God is like. And to show what God is like, it takes male and female. But if you erase and blur this distinction, then you obscure the image of God. There is glory and wonder and beauty and awesomeness in male and female. Why? Because there's beauty and glory and wonder and awesomeness in God himself. So the sexual revolution is rebellion against this and judgment from God. Think about this here in a minute. In the book of Amos... Amos, uh, the prophet, says that there was going to be a famine in the land of the hearing of the word of God. No teaching, no prophesying from anybody. This is God's judgment. God's not going to speak anymore. Well, in the sexual revolution, there's not a famine of the hearing of God's word, not just a famine of the hearing of God's word. There is also a famine of seeing the image of God. We don't hear from him, and we don't see him expressed beautifully in male and female. So to see a homosexual relationship here is to misread the text. But I think that that misreading, actually we can go a step further here, it does something else in this age of sexual confusion. In 2005, 12 years ago, an English professor, I believe at Columbia University, named Anthony Esselin, wrote an article called A Requiem for Friendship. Um, he, the article was called A Requiem for Friendship Why Boys Will Not Be Boys and Other Consequences of the Sexual Revolution. And in it, he argues that the brokenness in the sexual order has led to the death of friendship, particularly masculine friendship. I want to read a paragraph from the article. He's describing a scene from The Lord of the Rings. He's describing what happened in a movie theater during a scene from The Lord of the Rings. So the Lord of the Rings, by token, of course, has one of the great friendships in literature between Samwise Gamgee and Frodo Baggins. So listen to what Esslin writes here. He's describing the, the film, and then he'll talk about what happens. Samwise Gamgee has been fool enough to follow his beloved friend Frodo into Mordor, the realm of death, to rescue uh, Frodo from the orcs who have taken him captive and who will slay him as soon as he ceases to be of use in finding the ring, Sam has fought the mon- monstrous spider. I can't pronounce his name. Shelob, Shilob, Shelob. Some, some of you nerds know how to pronounce it, but we'll just move on. <laughs> that was not kind. Not kind. All right. Friendship, divinity friendship. Okay, so Sam has fought the monstrous spider. You fill in the details. Has eluded the pursuit of the orcs and has dispatched a few of them to their merited deaths. Finally, he finds Frodo in the upper room of a small filthy cell, naked, half-conscious, lying in a heap in a corner. Frodo, Mr. Frodo, my dear, he cries. It's Sam, I've come. With a bluff tenderness, he clasps him to his breast, assuring him that it is really he, Sam in the flesh. He cradles Frodo's head as one who would comfort a troubled child. And he says, at that scene, a snigger rises from the audience in the theater. What? Are they gay? Gavin Peacock writes about this. If you redefine sex and gender is fluid and masculinity has no fixed meaning and the sphere for sexual intercourse is not marriage alone between a man and a woman and transgenderism and homosexuality are normalized, then you distort or lose a proper masculine friendship. King David was a warrior, a fighter, but he was also a musician, an artist. He shows us that it can be good and true to say to another man that you love him and to show culturally appropriate physical expressions of that love, a handshake a hug, an arm around the shoulder, a cradle for the head that weeps. Masculine friendship can speak like David spoke on the occasion of the death of Jonathan. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. This is not homosexual love, as some suggest. It is normal, non-sexual, brotherly friendship. Friendship. The kind that makes winning teams he doesn't say it, and that wins wars. The kind that gives strength to families and churches. The kind that honors God and benefits the world. And the kind that follows after the ultimate friend and true man, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for his friends. See, the sexual revolution has so distorted our vision that we can't even recognize a healthy masculine friendship when we see it. It's one of the great costs that we have paid in our society. Think about it. When you see two men walking down the street and they appear to be close to one another, where does your mind go? There's two gay men. That must be the way it is. because That's the only category we have for two men who are close to one another. Now, in the time that I do not have left this morning, we actually need to talk about the passage of Scripture. Let's talk about this friendship here, and I want to identify four qualities for you of this remarkable friendship. And these four qualities come under one heading that I want to name Fidelity. Friendship equals fidelity. But it's a fidelity of a certain type, and it's expressed by, it's marked by these four elements. And the first one is covenant, covenant. Covenant is central to this passage, it appears repeatedly in this passage. So verse 8 says, As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. Verse 16, So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. Verse 17, And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath. That's the covenant word. Verse 42, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. That's a covenant term too. Covenant. The Old Testament word that we sometimes think about, well, often we think about, appears here. It's that word chesed. Do you remember that wonderful Hebrew Hebrew, Hebrew word chesed? Ah, it means loyal love, friendship love. It's translated sometimes in the Bible, steadfast love, loving kindness. Uh, it's, it's a faithful, loyal love. This is the way that God loves his people. He loves them and he is faithful to them. And that word shows up here when uh, Jonathan asked uh, David in verse 14, but show me unfailing kindness. Show me chesed, like the Lord's chesed. Now, when we think about this word covenant, there's a couple of different ways that I think we should think about this and how it might apply to us as we see it here in the text. The first way that I want to think about how this might apply is by thinking about the unique relationship that Jonathan and David have. There are elements here in this story that are true of them that are not true of us, but we can still learn about them. Let's talk about this here. David is God's anointed. He's the next rightful king. Jonathan, though, is the crown prince. (laughs) According to God's prophet, David is going to be king. According to the normal laws of inheritance, Jonathan should be king. So you see this strange dynamic in how Jonathan speaks to David and how Jonathan bows before David. There's just this weird, who's going to be king, right? The throne is Jonathan's by right, but God has decided that it should be David's. Even though Jonathan is a worthy man, Jonathan would be a great king, so much a better king than Saul. How should Jonathan respond to David? We know know what Saul did. Saul called him his enemy and tried to kill him over and over again. But Jonathan loves David. He gives David his robes. He makes a covenant with him. He protects him. Uh, He defends David. He honors David. He entrusts himself into David's hands. He knew, verse 13, he knew that God was with David. He had been with Saul Now he's with David because the end of verse 13 says, May the Lord be with you as he has been. Probably should say was. May the Lord be with you as he was with my father. God's not with my father anymore. He's with you. And I recognize you are God's anointed king. In the ancient world, when a dynasty changed... Uh, the new king was supposed to ruthlessly eliminate any descendants of the old king. That's what you were supposed to do. Well, it, happens, it happened in the 20th century. I'm sure it has, still happens today. When a, when a new uh, leader takes over, especially in a dictatorial regime, he eliminates anybody who was a friend or a potential threat of the previous leader. Well, that's what you're supposed to do. That's why Jonathan, verse 15, says, um, Do not cut off your kindness from my family. Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Isn't that interesting? Saul had called David his enemy. And Jonathan now says, when God cuts off every one of your enemies, Saul, show kindness to me and and to my family. What's happening here? There's a sense in which Jonathan, he's entrusting himself into David's care. He's entrusting himself into uh, his family, into David's care. Robert Bergen says this is the chapter that is Jonathan's moment. He shines in this passage. Why? Because he is setting aside his own interests and his own honor to serve God's anointed. I know who you are. You are God's anointed. And, and I am entrusting myself at my great cost, at great cost to me, I am entrusting myself into your care. There's a sense in which Jonathan is trust, entrusting himself to God's anointed in the same way that the New Testament enjoins us to entrust ourselves to the Lord Jesus, David's great son, the Lord's anointed. We come to the Lord Jesus from a family that's at enmity with him. Right? Jonathan was Saul's son. He was David's enemy. He came to David and secured God's anointed. We come to Jesus at enmity with him. Adam's family in rebellion against him. Jonathan set aside all of his interests so that he could honor God's anointed. Saul tried to provoke him. That, that you son of a statement, he, he tried to provoke him Verse 31. Don't you know what this is costing you? This is costing you your kingdom. You can't be loyal to David and protect your own interests. Don't you know what you're giving up? Isn't that one of the great temptations that we face, those whispering voices that we hear when we think about our own allegiance to the Lord Jesus? Don't you know how much this is costing you? Don't you know what you're giving up? Don't you know where this path is going to lead? All of my family... All of my future, everything I have, I entrust into the hands of the Lord Jesus because he is God's anointed. He is the one who is worthy of this trust. Jonathan was looking forward, well David was too, at the Lord's anointed, the Lord Jesus. We look back and see what he has done. If Jonathan had reasons because of God to entrust himself to David, don't we have 10,000 more to entrust ourselves to the Lord Jesus. He is a friend who demonstrates greater love. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And the Lord Jesus has laid down his life for us in order to take us, those who are his enemies, and make us his friends. He died on the cross for us, paying the penalty for our sins, rose again, calls everyone to trust in Him, to turn to Him and trust in Him and find life and forgiveness. Have we not reasons, 10,000 more than Jonathan, to entrust ourselves to the Lord Jesus? We do that, we express that when we worship together and when we sing songs about Jesus' greatness. Awake, my soul, and sing of Him who died for Thee and hail Him as Thy matchless King through all eternity. That's why we sing those songs because we are trusting ourselves to the Lord Jesus. And, and when you read your Bible with your children, whether you read it around the table after d- dinner or a storybook at night, and when when you pray with them, you are entrusting them into his care. Just saying something like Jonathan did Lord Jesus, here are my children, and I am teaching you about them. I am am praying in their presence to you about them. I am entrusting them into your care. There's a sense in which what Jonathan does here is, is what the Bible calls us to do with the Lord Jesus. That's one way that we can think about this covenant between these two men. But th- there's another way that we can think about it, and I just want to remind you for a minute of our own covenant with one another. I wonder how seriously you take it. It's written, it's written down in the front of our hymn books, right? Uh, we covenant with one another as one body in Christ. We read that a couple of weeks ago. You know, all of your most important friendships, relationships, are sealed by covenant, your marriage, and your church membership. The church covenant, it's a a document of friendship, isn't it? We will love one another, admonish one another, rebuke one another, rejoice with one another, weep with one another, pray with one another. Here's one of the places where that's modeled for us. Covenant, covenant is a key word of this fidelity here. Here's the second word I want to use to describe this fidelity, this friendship, and that's the word mutuality, mutuality. This interaction between David and Jonathan, it's almost fun to watch. David is the master strategist. He's the cunning cunning on the battlefield. That's why he wins. When the Bible uses the word in chapters 18 and 19 to describe David as successful, he's successful, he's successful. That word has embedded in it this idea, the Proverbs uses it a lot, this idea of cunningness or wisdom. He's, He's cunning on the battlefield and that's why, in part, why he wins so much. He's Successful, and you see David plotting here and 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 planning. So he comes up with the first part of the plan. I'll go in the field, and you go to the dinner. And that's the first part. And then then Jonathan comes in and says, "Oh, I got got I got, an, I got a bit another another idea." After two and a half days, you you go out in the field, and I'll bring this boy, and I'll shoot the arrows. They're planning together, right? This wonderful mutuality. Uh, this is what friends do. A true friendship is not a one-sided dependence. They're mutual. I know in the world there are draining people, right? You love and you care for them, you serve them, because the Bible calls us to do that, and it's an expression of love. That's not actually the model that's here, though. If you want to develop friendships, you should think about this mutuality. I'll give you a warning. Don't look for perfect people to be friends with. It will be a long search. Find a few faithful, imperfect friends. Do you know anybody who's imperfect? They're a perfect candidate for your friendship. Right? That's why mutuality is so important, actually. There's moments in every great friendship where you have to pick one another up. All right, here's the third key word. It's really a phrase. God centeredness. God centeredness. I, what's striking about this chapter to me, it, you could read it later and look at it, is, is how much, especially in comparison to the chapters that come before, God's name is used as part of their conversation. So it's striking to me. Verse 3 As surely as the Lord lives. Uh, verse 8 As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. Verse 13. Uh, but if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan so severely. Okay, verse 16. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. Uh, verse 42. The Lord is witness between you and me. Their, their discussion is so bound up in this, this um, recognition of God being at work in their friendship, in their lives. Actually, verse 22, so important here. But if I say to the boy, Jonathan says, look, the arrows are beyond you, then you must go because the Lord has sent you away. That's an astounding observation from Jonathan's part. David is going to spend the next few chapters running from Saul in the wilderness. And Jonathan is the one who recognizes, he sees what's happening. This is God's doing. God's, God's working in your life, David. And, and, and he's apparently sending you away. Jonathan and David are friends because they recognize in each other a common faith, a common confidence in God, and they're interested in supporting and upholding one another in it. Let me read just the last time that Jonathan and David meet one another is in chapter 23, verse 16. David's running. We'll come back to this in a few weeks. David's running. Verse 16 of, of 1 Samuel 23, the text says, And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Haresh" And helped him find strength in God. is that a beautiful phrase for friendship? He helped him find strength in God. Do you have friends who help you find strength in God? Huh uh, it may be difficult. this may be quite unnatural for you to suddenly start talking this way if you're uh having snacks in the foyer after the service and you start throwing May the Lord and May the Lord and May God into your conversations, people will wonder. That's a little strange. But um can I just, I'll make one suggestion to you this morning when it relates to this what sort of role does prayer play in your friendships? Um could could you change that? That when you get together to play cards or for a play date with your kids or a picnic or a game night or something, you spend some time praying for one another. I might be a little difficult at first. I don't think I'm very good at this. But this is one of the ways that you could increase the God-centeredness of your relationships. Nothing else you can begin by asking, hey, I'm going to pray for you. How can I pray for you? Here's the final element here, love. The word love. The word love appears here. I already talked about one Hebrew word for love, chesed. Verse 17, it talks about another word. There's another word for love here. Um, at the end of verse 17, Jonathan loved him as he loved himself. He loved David as he loved himself. That's the Hebrew word ahav. And it's important because it shows up in Leviticus 19:18, Love your neighbor as yourself. Which, isn't that this is exactly what it says? Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is true friendship love. So what are you going to do here about this text? How, how are your relationships going to change? Are there new friendships that you need to pursue? A couple of weeks ago, we printed out the church covenant. We put it in the bulletin. We're going to do that when we have new members join. It makes it easier to read a little bit. And, and you can put it in your Bible and keep it there. Read it there. Take it with you and read it a lot. You can pray about it. You can hold it up as a mirror to your life as you think about your own practice of friendship. There's a a company online. It's called sociallyup.com. If you go to sociallyup.com, you can pay them to buy online friends. Uh, You can buy Facebook friends. You can buy Twitter followers. You can buy YouTube views. For a mere $3,100, they will make your video get 1 million YouTube views and you'll be viral. If you don't know what that is, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Okay, usually... Being viral means you go to the... Anyway, Uh, it's all it takes. All you need is $3,100 and you can be internet famous. You know those aren't real friends, right? You you know that. And after you read this chapter, that sort of friendship kind of tastes like sawdust in your mouth, doesn't it? This is the real thing. That's what we're after. It's followers of the greatest friend who has ever existed. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to you for this beautiful friendship in this passage of Scripture. Lord, we confess that we are often our own worst enemy when it comes to forming friendships. We are afraid. We are ashamed. We are lazy, we are selfish, but some of us in this room, Father, are just desperately lonely. Father, I pray that you would prod us by your word, through your spirit, that we would pursue one another as we have, as members in the church, ostensibly promised to pursue one another. Father, help us to be a congregation that strengthens one another in God. That is faithful to one another. Help us to turn from our fears and selfishness and competitive spirit and and uh, help us to pursue one another for Christ's sake. Lord, in, in this world filled with confusion, we need your sure and strong word to guide and direct us. Do that. Oh, please, we pray together in the name of the Lord Jesus saying, amen.